0: This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Aaron Mayer of Gilderland. He is the new director of a wilderness campaign for the Adirondack Council. Following the lead of President Joe Biden, Forever Adirondacks will focus on enhancing carbon sinks in forested land to slow climate change. Mayor, who retires this month as a public health epidemiologist working for the state, will combine his skills and data analysis with his passion for preserving the environment. He served as the first black president of the Sierra Club a commitment that sprang from his work as an urban environmental pioneer in the 1990s. The next frontier, Mayor says, is to save the planet.
1: So their wilderness campaign director, that is my actual title. And the Forever Adirondacks uh, is my wilderness campaign. And uh, what it does and what it is, is to holistically rise to meet the challenge of not only uh, bringing wilderness and open spaces into the fight for preventing the effects or worse effects of climate change, but to do that in a way that not only does does it protect the wilderness, which is really the core mission of the Adirondack Council, but do so in a way that it provides jobs as well as the infrastructure and capacity for clean water and clean water and, and as I say, all the tributaries and all of the headwaters for various municipalities and communities who rely upon the clean water resources right now for their potable water supply. So what President Biden did with his Thrive Agenda, agenda in Washington, D.C., for the first time in modern climate fight memory was to elevate the com- conversation on what they call carbon sinks. And carbon sinks are things like forest, flora and fauna that basically absorb the carbon at the atmosphere and sequester it and or in the case of plants, use it as food and give it off back as oxygen. And so by doing so, uh, you need large, clearly large stands of old growth and, and, and large stands of forest to have a significant impact. So the need for wilderness protection increases. So rather than it just simply being, oh, we're just going to increase the amount of forests, um, there's the piece of, you know, of stewardship and management of that. And so one of the things that New York State is rich in is wilderness areas and open space. And the Adirondacks is absolutely can fit about uh, a dozen of our biggest national wildlife monuments inside the Adirondacks. It would be, you know, if the Adirondacks would stay, it'd be like the size of a of a Vermont, and uh, uh, and so it is a massive area. But the Adirondacks is not only just wilderness; it's a combination of towns, municipalities, uh, and varying uh, uh, forms of, of public-private use. Of uh, private use in the form of farms and other pieces that make up the Adirondacks and the area within inside the blue line. So um, with that diverse range of usage, you know, the key is how do you harmonize all these needs to meet this national challenge? And what's great about this national challenge is not the call for, but the president's investment in infrastructure piece. He's going to be setting aside, you know, perhaps up to a trillion dollars in infrastructure investment. And right now is the horse race that begins when communities start to uh, delineate and quantify and identify what they call the projects that make the goal of forest uh, expansion and uh, carbon sink expansion drive uh, with this thrive agenda. So you're going to try to save forests, but also create jobs. And so mine is to build a coalition of partners that start to define and identify all the jobs that are essential to successful forest and wilderness management and connectivity. And with that, you know, we have an opportunity to employ potentially thousands of New Yorkers, bring in uh, a revenue stream that reinforces the ecotourist economy that is the Adirondacks, but to start to build and collaborate with communities in such a way that they start to work together and they start to start to deal with eco uses rather than any type of economic development use. Because currently uh, a lot of towns, as you know, most municipality, they get their revenues from tax dollars, business taxes and, and tax dollars in the form of real estate taxes or rateables, which is why we have suburban sprawl, which is why we have uh, unchecked growth in most uh, densely populated areas. Uh, But you don't want to do that in the case of the Adirondacks. It's not a goal to lose for us. In this case, if you're going to expand wilderness and wilderness protection, how do you do so while at the same time generating the revenues that towns and communities need, but also families need? You know, we want to talk about living wage jobs. We want to talk about sustainable incomes. And can we do that while, you know, achieving the critical goal? Uh, of Article 14 of the the New York State Constitution with regards to keeping the forever wild character of the Adirondacks. And so it's a special charge, a special mission. And having this portfolio is that next frontier in us trying to save the planet while also doing something economically sustainable uh, for New Yorkers and adding to a unique ecosystem that is the Adirondacks.
0: So you've given us a lot to think about right from the start. Could we just back up a little, because you've used some terms that our listeners might not be familiar with. Blue Line huh. is one of them. Just could you give us a little history of both the scope of the Adirondack Park, how it came to be, and you know how the Constitution in New York protects that, and then also your particular organization, um, the Adirondack Council, um, just a little bit about its history as well, and its very important advocacy role in keeping this forever wild.
1: Yes. Well, I'm not the, as I say, the the proverbial Adirondack um, uh, historian and expert, but the blue line, which everybody talks about, uh, is the boundaries, uh, of the park and, um, uh, the, uh, Adirondacks actually, the tie, the name actually comes from the Mohawk people. And it's, uh, I believe they pronounced it Hederonda and it's, uh, the eater of trees, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, 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 you know, you know, one of those interesting things, uh, you know, and when you, when you hear these little cool things, so I would really was interested in its early history and its geology, and um, it's it's just one of the uh, uh, like I said unique uh, places, and that you know uh, it was um, you know as I say in the case of the Hudson River, it's the it's the headwaters for the Hudson River uh, Lake here in the clouds uh, begins the you know the critical headwater for what would go become the mighty Hudson River as you get down by the New York Harbor, but. Uh, You know, it's, uh, you know, it's one of the places that, uh, you know, has a very, very, very unique uh, 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 geology as well as history. Um, But the main the main piece uh, is that, uh, you know, it's one of the things that uh, when we talk, you know, about the park, um, you know, we we look at, you know, that special piece of legislation that was created in 1884. Uh, in which botanist uh, Charles uh, Sargent, you know, recommended, you know, the establishment of a forest preserve and, uh, and to be forever wild. And this is, uh, you know, uh, something that the state of New York uh, took up. And um, in 1894, uh, you know, they created Article 7, uh, which was renumbered and renamed Article 14 uh, of the New York State uh, Constitution that embeds with our constitution, you know, setting aside and protecting and preserving that area, you know, as uh, forever wild. And um, you know, it's uh, has about uh, 130,000 residents. Uh, it's over uh, 6,970 square miles. Uh, it has a range of industries, mainly pulp and lumber, uh, but you um, you know, it's, it's, it's a massive uh, area and ecosystem and, uh, you know, that has been made famous by the likes of Bob Marshall, uh, who is a early hiker and conservationist uh, leader. Uh, but, you know, what is unique about it is that uh, the range of activities, you know, from hiking um, to camping to various water sports, paddling and canoeing, uh, you know, it is very unique. It has, you know, um, you know, very, you know, the wild center, for example, up at Tupper Lake, uh, is one of the critical, you know, tools that I've taken all my daughters, uh, to, um, you know, uh, and, um, you know, you have, uh, the, a- you know, the Adirondack experience in, uh, in blue mountain, you know, so this, you know, there is a, a, a whole host that of things and activities uh, that are there. Uh, clearly, everybody from the Winter Olympics of 1980, you know, Lake Placid uh, uh, and uh, right outside of Lake, Lake Placid, uh, you know, ski is Mount Hohenberg, uh, where they had the famous bobsled runs. And yes, my daughters had a youth program, in Albany, where kids from the inner city could go up and actually use the order or the Olympic our, our Development uh, Agency facilities. Uh, so, you know, there have been, various connectivity, but it's been mainly in the capital region. And so uh, now we have an opportunity with this national effort is to, you know, connect uh, this huge, massive asset, you know, that we have, you know, fully, um, you know, with a national campaign on climate, as well as still being a very, very powerful, uh, you know, six, almost 7,000 square miles of resource that it is. Uh, to New Yorkers, so I think it's 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 an expanded capacity, and but it's an important one because think about this: when we talk about um, forest loss and land loss, we tend to talk about the you know the Amazon rainforest or the forests in Indonesia that are burning, and we globally take an, make an argument that it is because of wilderness loss in developing nations and in, in South America. That is putting the climate in peril along with the burning and increased burning of carbon by First World Nations, without ever talking about the forest and the carbon assets within First World Nations. By First World Nations, we're talking about the G7 economies that everybody knows right now. We're talking about the Japans of the world, the France's, the Germany's, the Englands, the Canada, and the United States. So these big countries have significant uh, uh, wilderness assets that uh, have been allowed for commercial interest and we don't put them on the front table the same way we ask of other nations. And so uh, it's really excellent that the president of the United States has now tendered that and put that on the front burner as well. And I think that by doing so, you know, we have to reimagine uh, land use and uh, land opportunities uh, and job opportunities in the United States. Because everybody often says, that going green costs jobs. But we already know that everything from solar, wind and geothermal, not only producing cheaper energy, uh, but they have created thousands and thousands of jobs. And so that's one growth sector, but now the president of the United States, the Secretary of the Interior and the EPA are asking for us to push our wilderness assets also forward. But to do so in a way that is sustainable, And that is protective of the wilderness and the environment is also the scale of the jobs that are needed to support that massive wilderness infrastructure. So we're going to need more park rangers. We're going to need more biologists, wilderness uh, rewilding experts, because, again, wilderness is not just woods and trees. These are whole ecosystems that contain a myriad and wonders of, of God's creation and critters and flora and fauna. And. As we do that, the desire for people to go outdoors and explore and see more, as we see right now, especially due to COVID, more people are making local trips. So we're seeing higher increased use of the Adirondacks, but not only just the Adirondacks, national parks nationwide, as people recreate locally. Um, We are going to have to start to deal with uh, use management, but all these things require are also the human infrastructure. Right now, we are understaffed or under-resourced But those resources and staffing have to be defined and laid out. And that's why this campaign uh, of Forever Adirondacks will specify the staffing and resource needs, as well as the increased wilderness protection that we must do in order to make this gem, as they say, shine.
0: That is the fascinating thing in what you've said as I'm listening, because the problem that's so obvious when you visit the Adirondacks these days is the overcrowding. The trails that are eroded, the, um, back when I was climbing the high peaks where the trailless peaks were actually trailless and you had to use a map and compass to get to the top, now they're all herd paths. So the idea, and I love the idea, but kind of unpack for us how it's possible to both increase use and increase jobs, while at the same time, preserving the wilderness? Because it seems on the surface, like those are opposite directions.
1: Well, again, and that's absolutely an excellent question and an excellent point. Uh, you know, right now, status, status quo and status ante before now, is that you have what they call your favorite areas. You have your 46 peaks that people want to go to. So there's the uh, demand. It's not like people are using these things in a uniform manner. Uh, We're gonna have to do a number of things like uh, start collecting the baseline data uh, that is very, very critical. Uh, uh, to uh, any use management or use management plan. Uh, And that's one of the things that's important. I mean, collecting, you know, before you start to create any process or any system, uh, you got to collect that data. And one of the critical investments that we need while building this out is having that staff of people that are going to be there, uh, you know, to monitor the flow of these areas. And so what does that mean? As you start to understand the population levels and thresholds by which you're breaking down the ecology uh, and you have those numbers, then you're able to more or less to start um, uh, 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 managing in the sense of directing people to trails that are not as uh, uh, highly used or areas that are not as highly used. And so you're going to have to start to come up with use management plans. But these are things that require the human resources and the staff to make them viable. Uh, people definitely respond to information, but if they're not getting information, which is the current status quo or information that's going to not help with regards to the stewardship and management, um, that is kind of hard to manage. By definition of management and uh, getting the a level of investment in human capital so that we can be better stewards is key to protecting the Adirondacks. And so it's almost like Um, if you're a diabetic, what's the critical data that you got to get? You got to get a blood sugar level and you take a daily stick or you have a device that allows you to monitor your blood sugar level. Well, we also have to do that with our ecosystems. Uh, We do the days of just willy nilly blind use and laissez faire and anybody can run and do something. We can absolutely love something to death. So the issue is, you know, When you take a blood sugar level, it tells you, it gives you a sense of what you can take in at that particular hour versus the next hour that day versus the next step. So uh, the good thing about any meter or monitoring, it then allows you to distribute people and populations to areas that are less used. And so it allows for the ecotourism industry to say what towns they should be pushing and promoting if one particular area is saturated with a big population. And it's that thing that we right now seeing crises right now at various national parks. There are some national parks in the West Coast, for example, um, their use management plans where they have they create what they call a lottery system. They have so many hundred thousand or so many million come in in a year, and then that's it, you know. And then you know if you don't have that permit and pass, you can't get in. And uh, you know we don't need something. That random and that draconian. I just think that in the absence of good management plans and the absence of good data collection that help you manage and shepherd people to still enjoy the wonders of the Adirondacks and have that Adirondack experience, but do so in a way that you know it doesn't result in the destruction of trails and also have the staff there that can repair and rebuild the trails. So it's like having a farmer and a steward of farming land. You you can you there's something in, in the farming parlance of crop rotation. So, do we have the uh, hiking rotation that we need so that we don't overburden some wilderness areas and some peaks while underburdening others? And so you start to develop those means by which you can manage and cook that information up. That is the way to choose a friendly for those who want to enjoy the experience, but also you know, make sure that you're protecting the wilderness and operating it down. Again, these are resources. That you know, that are beyond the taxpayers of any locality. It's beyond the capacity of a county or municipality. This is why the federal government stepping into this place is very, very critical. And uh, just like our military, our army, it's a national defense. In this case, this national defense to protect our climate. We're asking the federal government, and the government has actually asked us to do this. And we're saying, hey, Mr. President, we agree. And here's what we need to set aside, you know, as a portfolio. And people said, well, isn't it expensive? You know, I always tell people, you know, we never have a problem when it comes to, um, you know, know, expending for the carbon sector. Uh, Right now, you know, uh, with regards to chip fabs, you know, the crisis with regards to microchips, the semiconductor industry, we're putting aside tens of billions of dollars to provide incentives to build chip fab factories. Again, that's money from the taxpayers paying for infrastructure for, in, for an industry that has the largest concentration of billionaires. So my point is, is that this is the issue of priority where we have to lobby at the national level, people like myself and say, well, wait, 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 wait. The big priority is protecting the planet, planet from the worst effects of climate change. And if we're asking for each state of the union to say get a billion dollars, that's $50 billion. That's chunk change compared to what the US throws out at military program budgets, uh, SpaceX budget, or even subsidies to the petrochemical industry. Um, say, and so $50 billion gives each state a billion dollars. If we had $1 billion, you know, for wilderness infrastructure in the state of New York, and by that I mean paying for the staff, to scale up to the, you know, couple of million acres we need to say do a year uh, to protect the wilderness and protect the Adirondacks. That would be a huge shift. And to have states do that and have each state invested in a billion dollars for wilderness protection, and you know, I'm just hypothetically pulling a number, um, would be less of a burden on any locality, but give the, the localities the opportunity now to expand and vision and be part of the solution rather than Having to scramble and then make various choices that may compete against the interests of protecting the wilderness. And so what happens is is that if we don't have people scrambling for resources uh, to do an unfunded mandate, but rather doing a mandate that is properly funded and resource, that's going to be very critical. And you need a national campaign to make that case. And we want to put the heart back in the Adirondacks. We want to put that heart right into uh, what we need to do to expand that wilderness. But like I said, to do so, we must do so with the jobs and the resources to make it happen and to make sure that that burden is not borne out by localities and the opportunities are presented to all the ecotourist uh, sectors and industries that can help that community and help the communities thrive. Because the other piece in creating those jobs, that's going to be population retention. That's going to be youth that don't have to go out of their state or county. They're going to find those jobs in a community that they've grown up in, that they love, and can now
0: help thrive. It sounds really exciting. And it sounds to me like you are the perfect person for the job. If you could just talk a little bit about, as I understand it, you're retiring in June from the Department of Health where you've worked mapping the spread of infectious disease. So you have at your fingertips the kind of data analysis skills. But then you've also had this kind of alternate career with the things that you're passionate about being a former president of the Sierra Club, um, and your reach in, into the world of environmentalism, um, which I guess goes all the way back to the start of the millennium, um, or even the 90s in Arbor Hill. So if you could just talk a little about yourself and some of those um, skill sets that you're going to be bringing to your new job in terms of what you've done with your life so far.
1: Sure, Melissa. Actually, you know, my career adventure into the environmental movement began when I moved here and brought my family here in 87. Uh, And uh, it was one of those unintentional uh, accidents of fate, uh, but it was a blessed one. Uh, I then was working for the State Department of Social Services. I was a data systems manager uh, in Medicaid. And uh, so a lot of the uh, programs that I dealt with, uh, you know, did a lot of the actuarial uh, or basically uh, financial uh, cost accounting of medical expenses and I tracked in particularly fraud. And a lot of the work I did was the was really the baseline stuff that led to managed care as we know it today. So in tracking fraud and tracking how people utilize their healthcare service, I, I was able to actually every year predict what the average person would use and utilize in medical services. And so we had an estimate on average cohorts and populations by age, gender, and race. And these things became, you know, very, very important baselines. Uh, and then, uh, as you know, with uh, the change in government, uh, um, when the Pataki administration was brought in, uh, Medicaid was merged with the New York State Health Department. And so I had an opportunity to do uh, epidemiological spatial analytics. And so I started mapping uh, a lot of, uh, you know, utilization you know, throughout the state and populations. I actually started doing that under Medicaid because I was geographically locating utilization patterns. And then that allowed me to branch into outbreaks, illnesses and other, and tracking other diseases. And so that allowed me to dovetail seamlessly. So I went from the Bureau of, of, of Medicaid uh, medical assistance uh, into uh, the Bureau of Chronic Disease Evaluation and Research. So I did an internal uh, career change there. And that, again, uh, a couple of good things that maybe, you know, folks seen on TV, but did not know about, uh, you know, one period uh, with the height of 9-11, I was part of the spatial analytic team that was down at Ground Zero uh, to remap and recreate Ground Zero because Building 7, when it collapsed along with the two World Trade Centers and other infrastructure there, that was where all the maps and plans of digital assets on Manhattan and lower in the lower part of the state were stored and all that was destroyed. So we literally had to recreate the digital infrastructure for New York City in particular in general, but lower Manhattan in particular, so that emergency responders could bring in the heavy equipment to move out in the debris, but also begin, uh, also have a recovery grid so they can do the initial rescue and later uh, recovery of any person that might've been trapped or lost uh, at ground zero. So that was one piece of my uh, uh, story career with the health department. The other piece was the Ebola outbreak. So one of my expertise in that area was uh, coming up with the methodology that allowed them to track uh, populations as they're moving and migrating within the uh, the transit uh, systems, in this case, air and ship or whatever have you, And uh, the initial proposal was uh, and guidance was actually having people uh, using the U.S. census that had African uh, self-identified as African in various countries and and, and, uh, uh, attributes on the U.S. census. And they were actually doing early maps on people and census tracts, um, you know, uh, that had denoted themselves as African as a uh, point of risk. Uh, in the case of Ebola, since this was coming out of uh, Africa, and which was, to me, a very kind of racist way of doing things. And so I said, that's not how you track the disease. You know where it's at, but the answer is, you know, we got to find a better way of tracking. So uh, my military experience reminded me that actually there was a whole system within the State Department and the way you track terrorists is by looking at their visas and where you see where they're coming from. Everybody has to get a visa to get on a plane to travel internationally between countries. And so you can actually, uh, by looking at visa applications, look at how people are moving through the international transportation system of air travel. And you know exactly what vehicles they're on. So with that, you get the population of people who are on that plane. You'll actually be able to track spread. So I was. Doing that, so that system became the mode and mentality by which they track populations moving from infected nations or areas at risk as they move through broader populations that put other populations in transit at risk and tracking all those populations. And we were able to track right down to the individual who came from countries or flights at risk that may have come in contact uh, with individuals who may have been exposed to Ebola. And it was was from that model that they were able to do a lot of the screening and know that they could do the screening at airports rather than using census tracking and census data of people who identified uh, themselves as African. And by the way, that same, fascinating. That same
0: That's just that fascinating. same methodology.
1: Yeah, that same methodology has been critical with regards to COVID. And that's how that response methodology was now being utilized to track when how people are spreading and bringing in COVID. Unfortunately, it, it fell down because they were only assuming that people uh, from China were coming through the West Coast. But as you know, with global travel, you must look at visas in general. And you, again, if you breach the protocol, you, you have a hole in your model. So by them only looking at the West Coast, they totally ignored the traffic from China to Europe and from Europe to the East Coast in the United States. And so uh, that explains, again, the same methodology. Again, is how it's applied. But yours truly had a finger in developing that methodology, so it's it's been a lot of fun. And then the uh, New York State Minority Health dis- uh, Disparity Reports, um, you know, for the Office of Minority Health, uh, which reports to the Commissioner on the conditions in dis- health disparities for the minority population in the state, New- state of New York, uh, very much you know part of that mapping and data collection exercise looking at the health of special populations and and indigenous populations within the state of New York. So a lot of those tools are very, very important with regards to research and data collection. And how that dovetailed into my work in the environment was that when I came here in the the, uh, late 80s, uh, I wanted to uh, find a place to raise my young family. Uh, And uh, could have gone to Gilderland. I could have gone to Clifton Park. But I really wanted my daughters to have, you know, an urban experience and not going to grow up in areas where their race might be an issue and they would get a certain level of harassment, but also grow up in an area where they could give back and uh, not feel isolated. So I actually chose to raise my family in Arbor Hill. Uh, Arbor Hill was a very poor to working class community and it needed, you know, middle class individuals to come in and be part of the community. Because that's how communities grow. People grow by shared culture and values and customs. And so, you know, the best way for a working class kid or a poor kid to look to middle class is have somebody from middle class as a neighbor. And so, um, you know, I was able to build a home right between Livingston Middle School and Arbor Hill Elementary School on the hill of like Dudley Heights. I did not know that that was the prevailing wind pattern of something called the Answers Incinerator, which is the waste-to-energy incinerator that burned garbage for an eight-county region in the capital region. And uh, my home happened to be in the prevailing uh, uh, southerly wind pattern for when they incinerated garbage during any warm weather day and during the summer. A southerly wind is the wind that's coming at the south, blowing north. A northerly wind is a wind blowing north, added a north blowing south. So during the summers and warm weather days, that garbage would burn, go north. And since the technology, so-called state of the art, was supposed to carry the uh, the, the um, incinerator plume aloft or over in the air, because it was built in Sheridan Hollow, it did carry it aloft, but the staff was below street level of the Heights of Capitol Hill, which is which was the state office complex to the South. And I lived at the North where Livingston middle school and Tivoli park is at, um, those two hilltops were above the smokestack and that smokestack pretty much uh, burned at in the smoke travel, pretty much at street level. And, uh, my older children, um, you know, were, developed something called environmental asthma, meaning that the acidic gas and uh, 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 nitrous oxide and all the other things that were coming out of that, uh, uh, that, that, that uh, incinerator, uh, you, know, uh, you know, injured their lungs, they developing lungs. And it's not only just my daughters, because, you know, that's where I first recognized the impact, but was having an impact on children throughout the community. I also noticed that every since my house was a new house, that the paint was peeling off of my uh my my home. So one of the things about sulfur dioxide in very cold conditions, like in the evening and the cooling, it becomes like sulfuric acid and it actually can eat and pitch and peel your paint on the house, your car, and everything else. So because of the rich concentrations, you can, it's also a very powerful lung irritant. So, it was because my babies were injured that uh, through research, and then I started being a researcher, I started collecting information to find out what was going on and what was the impact and how big and great and vast it was. I traced it to the Answers incinerator. And not only did I find it to be a powerful lung irritant with regards to asthma and other conditions, um, it also threw out a lot of metals, mercury and lead. So, a lot of children within the prevailing northern and southerly wind pattern were developing elevated blood lead levels, and they were having to be uh, chelated, taken to Albany met. The people attributed to lead paint in the housing, but actually it was the incinerator that was the root cause of a lot of the elevated lead in the community. So that's what thrusted me into uh, the battle against solid waste, solid waste incineration. And since I lived at Tibley Park, not only was it having effect upon us, but it was having effect upon the flora and fauna in the park, and I tapped a dear friend of mine, uh, Wart Stone, who was a wildlife pathologist working for DEC. He looked at the flora and fauna in Tivoli Preserve. And, you know, being a scientist, you know, he had his doubts about what the cause would have been. But when he got into the field and started collecting data and he did soil samples, water samples, uh, dust samples, and not only did he find the lead, but he also found the dioxins and purines and other things that were in uh, the soot. And he was able to fingerprint the soot to garbage incineration. And we went all the way down to take samples from the incinerator, which was always open and the dust was blowing out and along the streets and stuff. So we were able to fingerprint it right back to the incinerator. This is what good science can do for you. And with that, um, I became an activist involved in the, uh, you know, the environmental movement. Now, the reason why I got involved in the environmental justice movement, because the environmental justice movement recognized that, you know, um, even within the environmental movement, people of color and communities of color are treated differently with regards to protection solely because of their race. And so I first went to a couple of big environmental organizations thinking that they would be, you know, willing to get involved in a solid waste incineration issue. And um, one of the questions I was asked at an organizational meeting by a woman who was white in in lower Manhattan uh, in trying to get them to assist us in Arbor Hill was, did I go to the NAACP to seek help before I went to them? So when my race and who I should, that I should contact a black civil rights organization rather than an environmental organization, it underscored the fact that my race mattered, even in their calculation of whether or not to provide any assistance. Um, A number of activists who were at that meeting were pretty outraged by how I was treated, and they actually came to our aid uh, in the community of Arter Hill, and they actually helped us develop our campaign. And so I made a commitment to to join that organization uh, once we were victorious, and I knew we would be uh, in our fight against the incinerator, Uh, but I also wanted to join the organization to make sure that no person of color would ever go through that treatment again. And that organization was the Sierra Club. And so that's how I became a member of the Sierra Club, not because it's an environmental organization, but because that culture at that time was unwelcoming and turned me away. But there were other people who had the deeper uh, respect for the environment and humanity who were outraged and offended, and they stepped up in the breach of those who stepped back and stepped away. So I would eventually go on to step into that organization And to begin what would become pioneering work of diversity, equity inclusion, which is now the rave of the current 21st century environmental movement. But back then I was the lonely voice, you know, in that in that fight, uh, pioneering and blazing away. And so just like with the climate fight, going to Paris, connecting jobs and clean jobs, I've been a pioneering voice on many of these forums and fights. And so I always recognize that when you begin something, an important action, that's going to be transformative of human society and transformative on how we act and how we interact with one another and how we depend upon one another. You know, uh, you know, I've always, you know, taken those opportunities to try to live them to be the highest of caliber, but also to have the greatest of impact. So too with this movement of joining, you know, the work with regards to the Adirondacks. So when joining the Sierra Club, I began a lot of my, uh, you know, not only environmental activism, but a lot of wilderness protection work. Uh, I led, uh, you know, what would become the Friends of Clean Hudson, which would become the Hudson River campaign to clean up the Hudson River, which sparked the dredging of the PCBs from the Hudson River. Um, I helped found and, and led coalitions all across the state and all across this country. Engaging in various capacities from protecting everything from farmers uh, to offshore uh, oil riggers and drillers and trying to get them to uh, engage in advocacy for offshore wind. So um, there are many places and spaces, and many places and spaces with regards to uh, increasing uh, national monuments and national wilderness protection areas that I've been part of those conversations. And again, a unique voice that starts off as a pioneer, but you work really not to be a pioneer, but to make it the norm. So knowing that it takes um, pioneering activity to create population activity. So it is to me, it's it's a it's the same old drum, you know. I'm actually singing the same old song actually, and it's and it's it's just a different chapter. So in singing. Uh, uh in this pioneering opportunity to fight the worst effects of climate change and expanding wilderness to do that, creating jobs and clean water infrastructure and resources for the community, you know, this is another, you know, uh, what is old is new again, because I'm not the first guy to business. Uh, if you go back, a guy by the name of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, and, you know, when we had the height of the Depression, he created something called the Civilian Conservation Corps when he was governor of the state of New York. And the place that he did that was in the woods of the Adirondacks. And when he became president, he generalized that model and that effort. And that model and effort became the infrastructure, what would become our National Park Service and the current Forest Protection and Wilderness Programs that we now enjoy. So an idea born out of economic necessity where the environment was used to create an entire sector of wilderness protection, but a a middle class, a working class, an entire science. In a place and space, again, it came from the economic uh, uh, needs of the depression, but we got a very powerful green good. And now we must turn to that very green good, that same model of economic opportunity and prosperity so we can now save the planet and save humanity.
0: Those are perfect closing words. I usually ask for a closing statement, but what could be better than that? Thank you so much, Aaron Mayer. You are a philosopher as well as a scientist, activist, and environmentalist. Do you have anything further for a closing
1: word? Well, the thing is, is that, you know, um, you know, as a person who's inspired by John Muir and the likes of Wendell Barry, You know, I think that, you know, good environmentalism and good environmental stewardship is not protecting the environment at the expense or at the exclusion of humanity, but wholly, holistically including us. I'm a, you know, a descendant of farmers from the Blue Ridge Mountains of the South, as well as farmers from the hill country of Westmoreland, Jamaica, and immigrant farmers. And so the wilderness and wilderness protection has been an intergenerational strain. I'm a kid from the Hudson Highlands. Who, who would have thought a kid from the Hudson Highlands would now be an activist connecting to the headquarters of Lake Clear in the clouds? So it is a blessing and a gift that has been restorative to my life, critical to my family's survival, uh, but now it's critical to all humanity's survival. So I say, go in, lean in, and let us expand this wilderness, and more importantly, let us. You know, you know, really push back and be serious and intentionally serious about our efforts as a country and as a people with regards to the worst effects of climate change. And here's the thing, New York State and all of us are frontline communities in this fight. And it is a blessing and an opportunity that the Adirondack Council had this opportunity and has also shared this opportunity with me so I can be in service, you know, for not only New Yorkers, but for our country and for the planet.